1: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, Positively FedEx.
0: Jill Schlesinger is an Emmy and Gracie Award winning business analyst for CBS News, and she is also an author. Her latest book is The Great Money Reset. It is the kind of book that I think millions of people would want to read because so many of us post-pandemic are going through a transformation. Jill, thanks for being with us. Congratulations on the book. So let's talk about it. The book is called The Great Money Reset. Why
2: did you give it that title? You know, it was so interesting because uh, before the pandemic, and I would always hear from people periodically about, like, I just want to change my life or something has shifted in my own real life. Maybe it's a birth or a death, a divorce or a marriage, and it it might have you reconsider your path. But amid the pandemic, I just got an enormous number of people flooding my inbox with kind of this quintessential and existential question, is this really how I want to live? It was almost as if this collective um, inner viewing of ourselves really prompted people to try to figure out, what is this path that I'm on? Do I like it? And... How do I reset to something if I don't like it so much? And I think this was a real pandemic era moment.
0: Yeah, and I think the timing of your book is perfect because, as you know, there are a lot of people, myself included, who are wondering, okay, how can I find a better work life
2: balance? Yeah, I think this is a huge one. I think this is actually the most common thing that I heard from people of all ages. You know, it's funny because I think you and I are around the same age, but I think you might be surprised to learn that there were people in their thirties and forties who maybe because of the pandemic, maybe before the pandemic, maybe it was just a moment where you were able to be self-reflective. They were concerned that their work lives really were dominating. And you know, we sort of heard this from frontline workers, but we also heard it from people who were, you know, in white collar professions, lawyers and doctors and uh, financial people. It was almost like, you know, I don't have to commute. And if I am a frontline worker, I'm working my butt off and I'm not sure I really want to keep doing this. And I think the whole point of the book was really to help people have a framework for making their decisions. Because, I certainly, listen, I'm a certified financial planner. So, you know, I'm a nerd by training, but I also, that also means that I I really want people to pay attention to the numbers so that they don't actually blow up their own plans. So the point of the book was, Hey, let's have a framework for creating this reset. Let's give you the steps or the questions you need to be going through asking yourselves. And that way we can lead to a, a better outcome. It may not be exactly what you wanted. I mean, you know, there's there is plenty of cases where people have contacted me and I say, you know, I don't think you can do it exactly that way, but maybe you can do it halfway or a different way. And that's why it's so valuable to have this guideline, this framework, these real specific asks to answer that will help you lead you To your next place.
0: All right, let's get into some of those specifics.
2: How do you advise people to
0: strategize
2: for their next financial move? You know, it's sort of like the 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 simplest thing is that you start by where you are, right? If you're you're getting a ride-sharing service, you uh, you say, "Here's where I am. Here's where I want to go," and that's essentially what a money reset is all about. It's about looking at where you stand today. Taking a good hard look, and that's you know what sometimes that's really hard. I'm going to break it down into five different things. I call it the Fab Five, the Fabulous Five, because it's no much. It's really not much fun me telling you these things very clinically. So let's think of the Fab Five. It's more fun. So number one, you're going to calculate your resources. And what does that mean? What are the, what's the stuff you own? Your assets, and what's your income? Now, when you think about resources, I want you to move beyond just, this is my salary, because a lot of salaried employees, and I know this from a fur fact, often will overlook some really juicy benefits that you get from your employer. So you have to calculate that in. And I'm not talking about the obvious, like if you're lucky enough to have a pension, but I mean health insurance. Does your employer have a match on your retirement contribution? Is your employer providing Flexible spending accounts for you and your family. You know, these things do add up. So, resources is number one. Number two, the liabilities, your debt. What do you owe? Is this um, maybe a student loan, a credit card, could be a mortgage? Just got to make sure you have it listed out. The next step is to consider your housing situation. Are you in a home and you love it and you want to stay there forever? Have you always hated owning a home but felt shamed around selling it because renting was like pounded in your head as a losing bet? Just consider your housing situation. And also, if you're trying to reset in a different way, maybe you can work from home. Maybe you can't. So take that into consideration. The fourth step is to consider your spending or your consumption. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make that they really, they say, oh, you know, I make a lot of money. I don't have to worry about my consumption. Uh, actually you do because we just need to figure out, I'm not going to wag my finger and tell you not to spend. I'm just saying, where are you spending now? And will that continue in the future? And the last step, you know, it's kind of more of the emotional one. What are some of the obligations that you might have made to others? And you know, this is a fascinating thing because it's not just, uh, you know, I promise that I will, you know, stay in this house forever. That's not likely what you said to your spouse. But maybe um, you have an obligation to your kids. Maybe you had said to your kids, you know, we're going to help pay for your college. And you don't want to go back on that. Or maybe you realize that you have an obligation to your aging parents. Maybe you have a relative who relies on you. And if you really take a different path forward, that person is impacted. So it's those five steps that help ground you as to where you are today and help you contemplate how the change you're hoping to make might actually influence all five of those.
0: And I really appreciate those steps, but as you were outlining the steps, I was wondering, okay, does this have to be age appropriate? And what I mean by that is, is there an age where you can no longer make that pivot to uh, the financial move that gives you everything you want in terms of balance in your life?
2: Is there an age where it's too late? Well, I mean, if you're 85 years old, probably it's not going to be the time to make this change. But if you're 60 I wouldn't say you're it's too late or 65 even. And a lot of people who contacted me came on the podcast, came on the radio show and talked about some of the changes they made. And it's interesting that you say that in some respects being late in your career and in your uh, you know sort of like beyond middle age gives you even more opportunity. It's just that we're really scared as we get older. And what do I mean by that? Consider these two this couple that I just adore. They're from Pittsburgh. She's a nurse. He's a physical therapist. And, you know, she's in the operating room one day. And it's the end of 2020. And one of the doctors says, Oh my God, the real estate market's going crazy, huh? And she's like, What do you mean? I, I you think everywhere? And she's, he said, Yeah, you should like check out how much your house is worth. And so this is late 50s. And she went home, talked to her husband, and she goes, let's find out how much the house is worth. When they found out, it was such a huge number that they realized that if they were to sell their home, they could essentially pay off all their student loans that their kids had, had accumulated, the parent loans for their kids. They could pay off their mortgage. They could pay off the credit card debt and the car loans and have a bunch of money in the bank. And this meant that, as she said to me, I can work less but for a longer period of time. This is a woman who, as a nurse, could work a ton of overtime. I was always working overtime to basically pay for the debt that we had accumulated. Now I feel like I don't have to work as many hours. I like my job a lot more. I've sold my home. I'm a happy renter. And you know what? I could do this a lot longer. So, you know, in the, in the say, weeks before she had ever even thought about this, she was working so hard, they were killing themselves to kind of get to 62 or 64. She goes, I could work till 70 on the schedule, and I could do it in a much more peaceful way without the same anxiety. That's what I want people to understand, that there are gifts that you can give yourself by going through this process whereby you might say, hey, you know what? I actually do like what I'm doing. I just don't like doing it as much as I'm doing. And you may have resources at your disposal, especially if in your 40s and your 50s and your early 60s, that allow you to make these changes. You are the author
0: of the book, The Great Money Reset. And so I'm also wondering, Jill, if you put your money where your mouth is. Did
2: you make some changes in your own life? I've made so many changes. I have so many changes that many of my friends and most of my relatives for a long time only put my address information in pencil. And so this is when we had those kinds of things. So I think the biggest change that I made, it might amuse you because you know me from CBS news and a lot of people think, oh, you know, you've been here forever because it sort of feels like forever. But after the financial crisis, Um, In 2008, I had sold my financial planning and investment management firm, and I really didn't know what I was going to do next. I had been a guest um, through one of our wonderful correspondents. Anthony Mason had used me in some of his segments about the financial crisis, and I had been uh, brought in as sort of an analyst when uh, the Saturday morning show needed it, and Anthony was so tired he couldn't do one more thing, and so I came in. And I got to know some of the people at CBS, but I had sold my business. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And my dear, dear friend, Maureen said, you need a pink binder, a pink notebook. I said, what are you talking about? She says, well, if you're going to do a big change, you need a pink notebook. And she pulls out this three ring binder with all the little tabs in it. And she said, and now, you know, in each tab, you have to think about how you're going to get to this next place. Do you really want to be in media? Let's start talking to people. Make the list of people that you want to talk to. Make the list of the people who are at CBS who helped you. And, you know, everyone from Anthony to his producer, Guy, to anyone else you spoke to in the morning, to Chris Raggy or, you know, and there are all these people who were so helpful. And I kept this real kind of like very intense log of every conversation I had. And this reset for me was huge because, you know, if you're listening to this, you have to understand that moving from financial services into media means a real downshift in income. And so what I wanted to do is prove to myself that I could look at the numbers, I could talk to the people, I could find out what was actually possible. And then I laid out three scenarios. I, you know, very, very simple. I said, what's the best case? What's the worst case? What's the middle most likely case? best case is easy. Everything works out. I somehow figure out how to make a living, even though it's not as much as I was making. I figured it's like really, I really wanted to try it. Um, And that's, that was easy. The worst case was like, you know, I was going to have to really chuck this idea about media, go back into financial services, find a job or just get a job selling. I could sell software. I could sell hardware. I could sell a car. I couldn't, I, I didn't really much matter. And that would be it. And the middling case, which I thought was the most likely is that I'd make some money putting together streams of income, maybe sort of doing a little writing and a little media and a little thing here and there. And that, you know, it would be okay. It wouldn't be great, but it would be good. And I could build from there. And I gave myself six months to really see what I could do. And to be honest with you, it was shocking to me that in essentially three months, I ended up with the best case scenario. And I'm, couldn't be happier that I'm still with CBS News.
0: Yeah, and we're obviously happy that you're on the team. But I'm I'm wondering why did you feel the need at that time to make that move? Was it because you saw it as less work, more fulfilling? What what motivated you to
2: make that change? It was such a it's a great question. When I was a financial advisor, fi- like a certified financial planner, money manager, I had I held a few different hats at the firm. So I was a co-owner of this firm. So one hat was like, you're the co-owner, you have to help manage this firm. I hated that role, hated it. And every day I hated it. I, I found it to be exhausting. I don't think I was particularly very good at it. Um, I tended to feel... Um, kind of depleted by the experience of feeling so responsible for 50 other people. It was, it was hard. So that was one job. The second job was I was, um, you know, I, I managed clients and I was the chief investment officer of the firm. And while I really liked talking to people about their money, I got a little bit over involved in my clients. I felt like I lost myself to some extent. And I felt like, you know, almost like the doctor who says, You know, I've lost, not like my objectivity, but I got so invested in making sure I took care of them that, you know, I wasn't sleeping essentially. I just was working, 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 working. And the third part of my job for the firm was I was the chief marketing officer, which meant I had to get the word out. And that was the role that I was doing the writing. I was doing media. uh, I was hosting a call and radio show. And I said, that's the part of the job I love And why don't I go towards the thing I love? And that is what led me to really explore that piece and try to say, okay, the money would be great because you stick around and you manage money, you make money. That's just the deal. If I make this leap today, I might not make as much money, but I really do think I would be more fulfilled. And I think I would actually be a happier human being. I don't think I was so happy when I owned this company. It was hard. And for 14 years, I felt the weight on something, on me, that was somewhat debilitating. I can't say I was like the greatest partner or friend during that time either.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that'll be the next book. Um, So also, I'm wondering, let's say you're with a company, you want to stay with a company, but you want changes, uh, in in terms of your job responsibility? How do you have that conversation with your boss?
2: You know, I think it's very important to always understand where you are in a cycle. Um, and I have a, a chapter in the book that's called Bully Your Boss. And bully is just B-U-L-L-Y. I use it for different, you know, different parts of this process. But the, the real issue when you're talking to your boss and the bully framework is to essentially be very clear about what you want from your boss before you go in. Don't go into a conversation with your boss, especially in, you know, a small business, especially I think that people are so overwhelmed. You really have to, the B is button up your ass. What are you asking for? And the next part is understand the full picture. Meaning, like, if you're asking your boss for a raise and you're in media and it's 2023 oh my God, you've got real um, chutzpah, as we say, meaning this is an industry that's consolidating. It's very difficult to ask for something without understanding the full picture of the landscape of your industry, the landscape of the economy, your company specifically, and also really understanding what position your boss is in right now. Um, the uh, the first L is losing your ego. Like You just kind of have to Be very clear about like what it is, what that you are actually asking for and make sure that you don't overestimate what you think you're, who you are in this organization. The other L is leave your time to practice the conversation. And then the Y is don't yuck it up because I promised my girlfriend I wouldn't curse in the book. And the don't yuck it up is really about, you know, if you don't come to a conclusion that's like where you want to be, don't burn bridges. It's just not worth it. And if you think that you're going to sort of instruct somebody about, like, I'll tell you about your company, it never works out that way. I
0: think I've done that a few times, but uh, uh, we won't talk about the results. (laughs) Uh, The Great Money Reset. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. You're the best. Let's talk about what's going on at the border and how the Biden administration is handling it with Camilo Montoya-Galvez, our... CBS News reporter who covers everything related to the border, related to the Department of Homeland Security. Camillo, thanks for your time. So what's happening at the border? Is the Biden administration adopting some of the policies of the Trump administration?
3: Well, Jeff, we have seen over the past two years under President Biden a unprecedented migrant crisis along the U.S.-Mexico border millions of migrants have journeyed to the U.S. border over the past two years, many of them from countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, where the U.S. has a very difficult time returning individuals because those governments generally don't accept U.S. deportations or at least severely limit them. And so a lot of this hinges on what Mexico is willing to accept and who Mexico is willing to accept in its territory. And what we saw three weeks ago from the Biden administration is a shift in strategy. The president announced that he was going to expand this policy known as Title 42 that dates back to the Trump administration to expel migrants from Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba who try to enter the U.S. illegally and to send them back to Mexico without a chance to seek asylum. But he also announced, Jeff, that He would create this program that would allow up to 30,000 individuals from these four countries to enter the US legally if they have a financial sponsor here in the US who is willing to support their resettlement. And so, in part, the administration is relying on this Trump administration restriction known, known as Title 42 that the Supreme Court has required officials to continue. And in addition to that, the administration said it was going to propose this regulation that would effectively disqualify migrants from asylum if they do not ask for protection in a third country like Mexico. And this is something very similar to what the Trump administration tried to do as well. So that's why you've seen, Jeff, some Democratic lawmakers and advocates for asylum seeker uh, asylum seekers rather, criticize the administration for relying or adopting on on very similar policies that were instituted under the Trump administration. But, you know, the Biden administration would tell you, Jeff, that they are also trying to expand legal migration opportunities for migrants, and they are no way relying on on Trump administration policies from their perspective.
0: But what the current administration is saying, is it what you're seeing?
3: Well, obviously, Title 42 was first invoked under the Trump administration, and It has been the main migration policy tool since early 2020 and the Biden administration defended it for over a year as a key public health tool. It did try to end it, Jeff, but the Supreme Court, at the request of Republican-led states, required officials to continue it indefinitely while it hears the merits of a case. But it did rely on this policy and it continues to rely on this policy to manage migration And, you know, this regulation that would disqualify migrants from asylum if they do not ask for protection in another country is very similar to a regulation that the Trump administration tried to implement. And and what we've seen from this administration, Jeff, is that they made pretty bold and ambitious promises to expand asylum and to have more generous rules for asylum seekers. But two years in, the administration is finding itself relying on, on many of the tools that it has previously denounced because of the operational and, frankly, political implications of, of, of the dire situation along the border. I mean, migrants are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border in greater numbers and from the highest number of countries than ever before, and and that's really posing logistical and humanitarian challenges for, for this administration in a very unprecedented way.
0: A lot of people are saying that this is an unprecedented migrant crisis. Do you think that what is happening now is an admission by the Biden administration that its policies have not worked?
3: Well, I I think the administration has come to the recognition and realization that its early strategy of just relying on Title 42 and just relying on some of these more traditional enforcement measures have not been effective at reducing the very high numbers of migrant arrivals, because over the past year, those migration flows have only intensified. And it's only when they have tried to mix increased immigration enforcement with expanded legal opportunities that they've seen some success in terms of lower apprehension numbers. So for example, last fall, when we saw this huge spike in Venezuelans trying to enter the US unlawfully, the administration basically said that, if you're from Venezuela and you cross the Mexican border illegally, we're going to send you back to Mexico under Title 42. But if you wait in Mexico or wherever you are in the hemisphere, and apply to come to the US legally under the sponsorship initiative, you'll get that opportunity to do so. And and after that policy rollout, Jeff, we saw the number of Venezuelans coming to the border plummet. And and that has been the case too with this new policy. We've seen already a 40% drop in the number of migrant apprehensions per day since the president announced these new policies in early January. So the administration really believes that this combination of expanded legal migration programs and more expulsions and increased enforcement will gradually reduce these very high numbers. And and that seems to be the case. But I, I think it's unclear, Jeff, whether this trend will continue in the long term. And again, this Strategy relies on a policy that is supposed to be, be based on the pandemic and tied to the pandemic, and that the CDC at this point has said can no longer be justified on public health grounds.
0: Based on what you're seeing, are these temporary fixes to the border crisis or are these permanent fixes? And and what is Congress doing? That's a critical question, Jeff. The Biden administration
3: and the president himself have conceded that this is a stopgap measure a temporary fix to the pressing challenges that the US is facing along the border. And again, that's because it relies on a temporary policy title 42. It's supposed to be tied to the pandemic, so at some point it has to end. And it also it also only applies to four nationalities. It doesn't apply to migrants for example from Central America's northern triangle, Mexican migrants, Colombians, Ecuadorians, and others who have been coming to the U.S.-Mexico border in record numbers. And so they have acknowledged themselves, the administration has, that this new strategy is a stopgap measure. But the president has said that he feels that this is the only strategy that will work amid decades of congressional inaction. And that tackles your second part of your question, Congress, Jeff, has not updated the U.S. immigration system in any significant way since the 1990s. And obviously, the country has changed dramatically since then, and the migration flows we're seeing at the border have changed significantly since then. And for many reasons, Democrats and Republicans have not, have not been able to forge an agreement on this issue, despite pretty broad bipartisan support for certain issues. Provisions such as legalizing the so-called dreamers, right? Immigrants who arrived in the U.S. as children, but who do not have legal status and increased border security measures that allow migrants to seek asylum, but that also ensure that those who do not qualify are returned to their home countries. Those are all policies that have popular bipartisan support, but for for different reasons, this issue has become really contentious and and Congress has not found a way yet um, Jeff, to 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 come to some compromise, but yes, the system is in dire need of reform, Jeff. And we'll see if this Congress is able to achieve some sort of bipartisan breakthrough. But I think the odds are are slim. Um, we saw that even when the president had slim but Democratic majorities in Congress, that he was not able to to pass an immigration reform proposal. And now, obviously, Republicans control the the House of Representatives.
0: Milo Montoya-Galvez, thanks for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Anne Hornaday is here. She is a movie critic for The Washington Post. And welcome back to ACF.
1: Thank you very much,
2: Jeff.
0: All right. I love having you on the program this time of year as we go through the Academy Award nominees and, you know, what you recommend here. I use as my guide for the movies that I have to see before the actual Oscars, which I believe is is in March 12th.
1: The March 12th, you got it.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's let's start cuz we have a lot to get through here. Best actor who surprised you?
1: Paul Mescal surprised me. Paul Mescal a lot of people know him from the Hulu series *Normal People*. That was sort of his breakout role, and he's been steadily doing good work and coming to the attention of, you know, of of especially in, in sort of smaller films. He hasn't really had a huge breakout film role yet, and he appeared in this little movie called *After Sun*, which is the writing and directing debut of a young woman named Charlotte Wells, and it's sort of a semi, I, I believe, semi-autobiographical. Look back at her relationship with her father. It's about uh, a single dad taking his daughter on a Turkish vacation.
3: So, what's your sister's name? Uh, Sophie. Oh, nice. I'm her dad, though, actually. Sorry, mate, I just thought that's okay.
1: And it's very impressionistic. You're not exactly sure what's going on. There's definitely some unresolved tension there, but it's never spelled out. And Paul Mescal plays this guy who's clearly a devoted dad and loves his daughter, but has problems. And we're, again, not sure what they are. And it's sort of told in these shards of flashbacks. So it's not like a um, traditional performance in a traditional movie, and it's a first-time movie. So all of those things, you know, kind of um, made it to me unlikely. He was never really part of the official conversation leading up. But it's it's a very delicate, lovely performance, and I'm, I'm happy to see it recognized.
0: What about Brendan Fraser? Is he making a comeback?
1: Yes, he is. He's very much making a comeback. This is a comeback year, and we'll get to that with the supporting actor category, too. But yeah, Brendan Fraser appears in this movie called The Whale, and it's based on a play about a dramatically obese man who's been self-isolating self-medicating with food and and kind of self-destroying with food. And he plays this protagonist in kind of a one location drama. It's him in his living room, encountering different people who come into his life, encountering his regrets. We learn a little bit more about what got him here.
0: Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring?
1: I was not necessarily a huge fan of the film per se, but I don't think anyone can deny that Frazier delivers a really soulful, compassionate, tender performance as this guy who the audience just by the end, you know, you, you care so much about him. You know, I think with his previous roles, even th- in things like George of the Jungle and stuff like, you know, his more commercial movies. He always exuded this likability, you know, I mean, audiences just love him. And so, yes, this is a comeback and it's been a really gratifying one and one that he's been clearly very grateful for and very humbled by. And, and so it's it's got that kind of classic Oscar comeback narrative attached to it.
0: What about Austin Butler? I thought he did well in Elvis.
1: I did, too. I mean, to me, Elvis was so frenetic and all over the place. In my review, I likened it to being in a washing machine for two hours where you're kind of, every once in a while, you get, a pier, you get to the glass window and you see through. There's something that happens in the second half of this movie, when, basically when Elvis gets to Vegas. Well, I just
2: do not think we should be making speeches about politics and religion.
1: Dr. King was shot eight miles from Graceland while I was out here singing to turtles. And all this. And all you can think about is how many... Sweaters I can sell. I am a promoter. That is what I do. And I'm Elvis Presley. That's what I do. That's when I could see his performance. That's when I felt like things slowed down just enough that I could really appreciate just how accomplished it is. And you're right. He did a great job. He just does a superb job in this movie, and I'm so happy. Again, I'm happy he's getting recognized for it. It's exciting, you know. I was I was not part of the mom generation that (laughs) grew up with him on Nickelodeon. Although my daughter remembers him very well, I don't remember him from those days. But you know, it's like Ryan Gosling. You know, I mean, it's just really great when you see these people, these young performers, grow into such assured and gifted actors.
0: Justin Timberlake is another one. Yes. Absolutely. I tell my my aspiring singer daughter, who's 21, I, I tell her all the time, listen, and look at all those Disney actors and actresses and how they went on from acting to these huge careers in music and, and movies.
1: Oh, it's so true. It's so true.
0: All right. Colin Farrell, there, there's also a lot of talk about him and his his performance.
1: You know what? The, there is talk about him, and I think that during festival season, which generally starts in the late summer, early fall, um, when these movies start hitting the festivals and critics start to see them and journalists start to see them. I think everybody kind of thought this was Brendan Fraser's to lose, not just because the performance is so good, but because of that narrative. And then we see Colin Farrell, you know, in the Banshees of Inesherin.
0: You, Colin Darley, do you know what you used to be? No, Parik, what did I used to be? Nice.
1: You used to be nice, didn't he not? And now, do you know what you are?
3: Not nice.
1: And here's a guy who is not necessarily a comeback, but he has just been doing fantastic work. I mean, people, a lot of people saw him as the Penguin in the Batman this year. Unrecognizable, you know, behind the prosthetics and the makeup. But a fun performance and then he was in a little or a smaller movie called after yang where he played the part of a family that is coping with with ai and a, and kind of a robotic family member and he again i was not necessarily a huge fan of the actual movie but his performance was outstanding and he is really good in in this one as well so i the talk is that it might it might actually go to him this year and it might be in recognition of just what good work he's been doing.
0: Is the difference between someone who is a good actor and someone who is an Oscar winning actor or actress. What what really makes the difference?
1: Well, you know, when you get to that fine point of deciding which of these nominees wins, then, I mean, we're already talking about outstanding performances. At that point, then it's really, truly subjective. I mean, I think I would describe it as sort of emotional transparency. You know, again, I, I use the term, and it's not my term. I mean, I actors I've interviewed before have used the term emotional instrument. I mean, they are our channel through the story. They are our emotional guide through the story. So I think the degree to which any of these performers perform that role, not only playing a character, but really letting the audience in, you know, and making us feel like we're inside the story rather than just watching it, then I think that's where you get into your Oscar winning performances. And that's why somebody like a Viola Davis or a Meryl Streep keep getting nominated and keep winning they just, they become that character, and then they bring us with them into that world.
0: It's an incredible talent. And yeah. as we look the Best Actress nominees, Michelle Williams is someone who seems to always be on this list.
1: True. And in this one, she's in The Fablemans, and she plays a version of Steven Spielberg's mother, who, by all accounts, was this larger-than-life presence. And she plays her big.
2: Sammy? We're going to use Daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it
1: crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. And your real train will not never get broken. One more thing, Dolly. Let's not tell your father. It'll be our secret movie, just yours and mine. Okay? Okay. And it's not a performance that we would generally associate with Michelle Williams because I think she's really become known, at least for me, you know. I mean, my favorite performances of hers are really the quiet ones and the the smaller ones, the stuff that she does with Kelly Reichardt, her devastating, devastating performance in Manchester by the Sea. So this one is playful and big and broad, and it's really fun to see her go, Find that, you know. She's a very gifted actress, and this might not have been my favorite of her performances, but I can see why it was recognized.
0: What about Kate Blanchett?
1: Well, there you go, right? I mean, can, how can you not? She is in that echelon now of just practically never putting a foot wrong. And in this case, she's playing, I think, one of the most fascinating characters of the year, Lydia Tarr, who's the title character of this movie called Tarr, a conductor of the Berlin Symphony who is driven and ambitious and rigid and domineering, problematic, uh, seductive, and just compulsively watchable. You know, you cannot take your eyes off her. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. You know, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops. Both because the character herself is so complex, but then because Blanchette is just such a, is a physical object, you know, with those cheekbones and that angularity. And she can inhabit that aggressiveness, that aggression so brilliantly. Um, it's just a mesmerizing performance.
0: All right. Some of the other Best Actress nominees. Andrea is it Riseboro?
1: Yeah. And Andrea Riseboro, this was probably the biggest um, surprise of the nominations this year because she appeared in this little teeny tiny movie called To Leslie that premiered at the Sun, uh, South by Southwest Film Festival in March. And she got really excited cited notices out of that. But it basically went to video. I mean, I think it had a tiny little theatrical release, but it, it was not a major movie. But along the way, you know, even since South by Southwest, the director, another first-timer, Michael Morris, and his wife, who happens to be the actor, Mary McCormick, were reaching out to their friends. Um, you know, they have high-placed friends in the business. They're hap- they happen to be apparently good friends with Howard Stern. And they, you know, as one does, you show it to your friends and say, hey, here's what we've done. And and talk started to build. Um, And by the time the movie did come out in October, I think they had enlisted a lot of pretty well-known people, including Stern. I think Charlize Theron came aboard early on to host a screening. Edward Norton, eventually Gwyneth Paltrow tweeted about it. And it had this complete snowball effect throughout November and December where there was this kind of grassroots movement on the part of really well-placed actors, famous people, saying that she deserved to be nominated, and and it worked, you know? I mean, um, I think their fellow actors took heed and went to those screenings or saw the social media and checked it out and agreed that this was a great performance, and it is. I mean, she's one of those other ones. She's been so good for so long now, but she she's a real chameleon. I mean, she's one of those actors that she can look different in every movie to where you don't even recognize her. Um, she's a character actor to the extreme and that is fabulous in terms of character work, but it can be to a detriment to an actor in terms of becoming a household name or, you know, a conventional movie star. Um, so in this case, you know, we've seen these things before, like when Melissa Leo took out her own ads, you know, for, um, for the, for the fighter and, um, you know, I think, I can't remember, another actress did a similar thing a few years ago. But but this kind of came from, the, from her fellow actors, which was sort of interesting to see.
0: And finally, best picture.
1: I don't know, to be honest with you. I think it could go in any number of directions. I think there's a lot of love for Top Gun because it did sort of save the movies this past year. Um, it brought people into theaters in such a positive, stirring, fun way. And it was such a return to a certain kind of filmmaking that I think a lot of people miss. Um, So I could see that winning just on pure, sheer kind of goodwill. But then again, like something like Everything Everywhere, I think also has a strong chance just because the people who love it really love it, you know. Um, But the people who don't really don't. And so this gets into the weeds a little bit, but the Oscars are decided on a preferential ballot. So something polarizing is generally not going to win. And I think everything everywhere might be too polarizing. But then you have something, and here's the other big surprise of the year was All Quiet on the Western Front, this Netflix movie, the third version of the Remark novel about World War I that is technically brilliant. And I think obviously because of so many, it received nine nominations across the board. I think it has just a ton of respect from so many branches of the Academy. And it's very timely in terms of his anti-war message. So, you know, that, and it's a very, it's a classical piece of very sort of um, golden age era filmmaking. There, there's not a lot of tricks. There's not a lot of chaos. It's just very straight ahead and and, and elegantly done. And I think maybe people might see fit to, to reward that. But honestly, it's anybody you know it could also i could also see Fableman's winning so i don't think anybody's really going to know until the night
0: and that leaves a lot of us a lot of time to uh, watch these movies that we've missed over the last year or so Uh, march 12th is the oscars ceremony so it'll be fun it'll be fun to see who wins and thanks for your time
1: thank you so much jeff that is America
0: Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. Don't forget that you can hear us on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were
1: blessed. My mom was amazing.